Would you like to introduce yourself? Okay. My name is Claudio Porta. I'm uh, uh, an anthropologist uh, born in Argentina and uh, did a, a PhD in anthropology at the University of Alberta. And I'm currently a professor and, and uh, director of the Marine Affairs Program at Dalhousie University. How did you get from Argentina to Alberta to Dalhousie? Uh, yeah, it's a long journey. <laughs> um, I back back home in Argentina. I uh, I was a journalist and uh, decided at one point that uh, journalism wasn't uh, giving me enough time to uh, dig deep into issues that that. Um, were important to me, so um, I uh, decided to do a master's and then a PhD in anthropology at the University of Alberta. My interest at the time was anthropology of technology, and I learned through uh, one of my professors, Milton Freeman, uh, who was uh, who is a very well known Arctic researcher. I learned about Inuit, and then I learned about Inuit in Igloolik using GPS. Um, that was ages ago. That was in '98, and uh, I learned that people were using GPS, starting to use GPS to 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 travel hunters. So I thought that Igloolik would be uh, the right place to uh, look at the effects of technology um, on humans, and that was the beginning of my master's, which then turned into a PhD and, and so on. Uh, in terms of, so in terms of the GPS, was that, was it hunters or, and people in a glue, like just, uh, just kind of organically, they saw the GPS and like, Hey, we should use this. Or was it yeah. introduced through a project? Well, or, it, it or... was actually, my understanding was that at the time that there were a few, uh, snowmobile companies and um, all-terrain vehicle companies that were uh, basically was kind of a gift oh, okay. uh, that, that came with the machines. Ah, okay. So those were the first ones. And, and I think at the time, the, the Iglulik Research Institute, um, uh, Iglulik Research Center um, in Iglulik, uh, they, they also uh, had some kind of a, of a project. Uh, because at the time, GPS were not um, as user-friendly as they are today. So they, they kind of involved uh, use of lead long and, 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 you know, certain abstract knowledge of, um, of geographic representation. Uh, so the Glulik Research Center organized some courses. And um, I arrived at a time where Inuit were basically starting to use the technology. I mean, nowadays they're Everybody has GPS, right? Yeah, but at the time it was uh, it's only a few people that were experimenting with it. Right, so kind of like a commercial happenstance, and the... yeah, yeah, <laughs> so it's, yeah. And then, so your research, um, either uh, at the in the graduate level or and continuing on yeah. it, um, because it the two projects that I mm -hmm. saw online are are maps. Um, yeah, and so. That is that where that's where the intersection of the GPS. Comes well, what in, happened or? at the time was that the GPS was um, it was fascinating even at the time, and I wrote a 
uh, with uh, my supervisor at the time, Eric Hicks, we wrote a nice article, I think. <laughs> it was nice uh, for current anthropology um, about the nature of technology and, and so on. Uh, but but I realized at the time that that it, it was too early to write uh, to focus my whole PhD on on that. And, okay. Uh, and I I learned um, as I was uh, uh, you know doing my research, I learned that there was there was a lot that that we didn't know about how Inuit related to space and and the environment in general. So. Um, organically my, my project i mean I, of course i had a, uh, a doctoral proposal and so on uh, but the truth is that it, it uh, you know as an anthropologist i was interested in in in, in having an open mind and kind of letting things guide me through my um, inquiry so um so i started you know, becoming interested in, in um, you know, how people found their way, the use of place names, and, and that led me to, uh, almost accidentally, to how uh, people were using trails, which became sort of an obsession for me <laughs> um, in, in terms of documenting them. And, and also, uh, uh, you know, I was quite surprised at how, uh, they dealt with the sea ice environment, uh, which was also, uh, uh, you know, a little bit unknown in terms of, of uh, outside of, of, of Inuit, you know, communities of how how that relationship took place between Inuit and and a very dynamic uh, place. So those became kind of. Um, uh, well, literally, they became chapters of my thesis, but, <laughs> but, but, but you know, they, they were pieces of the puzzle. So in terms of method, and this is where I mm-hmm. uh, go down rabbit hole, because I this is what really interests me, with, uh, yeah. is the methods that people use to, uh, to produce their knowledge and collect their data. So um, in terms of uh, finding out the trails or mapping them, mm-hmm. because they're now... Uh, I know this is jumping ahead or mm-hmm. probably encompassing your whole career. Uh, like what, what were the methods of that you used? That I used? To, yeah. Yeah. So I started almost by accident. So I was doing a, a survey of place names uh, okay. around the island of Iglulik. And I was basically following a hunter you know, on a snowmobile. <laughs> and then by, I don't know if it was by accident or, or fate, whatever, but... I didn't turn off the GPS uh, in between. Uh, basically, we were going to each place and taking pictures and you know recording stories. But I didn't turn off the GPS in some cases. And then when I got back to um, the house where I was staying, I I uh, downloaded all the information into my computer, and there were not only place names, but there were also GPS tracks. Right. And then um, my, my Inuit friend and then some other people that, that were around started talking about those tracks. Uh, and I realized that they were not just talking about the tracks, they were talking about well-known trails uh, that, that they would actually uh, follow year after year. So that led me to, you know, ask questions about 
you know the consistency of, of use of, of those trails so um did they you know were they used by their parents by their grandparents mm -hmm. and uh the answers were quite clear that all those trails were or at least most of them were well established and they had been used since time immemorial so i thought at the time that it was you know fascinating to to have a, a network of mobility um, that was you know it, it didn't correspond with our own ideas of what you know a road system is because you know streets and highways are physical realities right and the trails and and even the boat um, uh, routes are uh, are permanent in people's memories but they are not physically permanent right, right? i mean uh, a track on the snow will disappear after you know the snow melts or after a snowstorm um and yet the the special layout um of those um trails and, and routes uh basically is part of people's you know individual and social memory so of course i couldn't uh i couldn't use gps to map all the trails i wanted to map although at the time doing my doctorate that was one of my main methodology is just follow people, right? Right. And record the, the, the trails. But then I started using participatory mapping techniques. And that led me to, you know, develop the methodology, you know, I would say at the point where it's quite sophisticated. And, um, and basically, I became this quest of creating uh, a planartic network. Uh, of any trails because one thing is that it was early enough uh, that I realized that um, the trails of let's say Glulik, um you know once you map them then you go to a neighboring community a neighboring I mean like 500 kilometers away yeah. right? <laughs> so Arctic Bay or Pony Inlet and then so you map the trails there and then what happens when you put them together you know it's using GIS um, you, you see that they actually connect, right? Right. So that's why I call it sort of network, right? Um, so um, um, so that I started collecting trails, uh, basically uh, through participatory mapping um, in Nunavut, and and then uh, at uh, at the time um, the, the former Inuit senator uh, Charlie Watt. Um, heard about my my work, and then he uh, provided some some help and some support and some funding also to to do some some of this documentation in Nunavik and um, in um, the Nunatsiavut region and and also in the Inuvialut region. So all together we have you know data from just almost twenty Inuit communities, right? And, okay, wow. And it's kind of an ongoing. Yeah, it's an not an ongoing uh, project. Um, but again, there is a clear sense of um, interconnectedness and a systematic use of, of land and ocean areas across the, the Inuit occupied Arctic. So obviously, this reaches places where I have not done any mapping, such as Alaska and Greenland. Um, but eventually, you know, it reaches the whole of, right. of the Inuit world. And in terms of uh, 
um, how did you negotiate? Maybe negotiates not like not literally between two people per se. Um, negotiate the kind of the knowledge of the trails as a, as you say existing amongst or in the people, mm-hmm. and then moving it into a like a visual uh, on, into a visual medium. So that that is become basically the the reason for the research. Okay. So it's to create a map, uh, and you know every time I go to a community, and if I have to uh, get you know research permits and you know obviously community support and so on, but uh, each community knows that the end result is going to be a map. So, um, and um, I have to say that. I have found nothing but support. Okay. Um, so basically, that is information that uh, all Inuit communities I've interacted with, Inuit organizations, and so on, considered important. Um, important for themselves because, you know, oral knowledge is um, not as strong as, as it could be uh, with uh, the passing of, you know, elders that were born in the land and so on, but also important in a sense of um, showing the world that the Arctic is not an empty, hostile place right. um, inhabited by isolated communities. Um, on the contrary, we're talking about a, a, a place that has... Um, a, a space that has historical and, and social um, uh, meaning and, and, and basically a, a social space and a historical space. So showing that interconnection um, basically tells people of a different idea of, of the Arctic, again, as opposed to the idea that most Canadians have of the Arctic as an empty place, which is, you know, what you see on a map. I mean, you see, yeah, you know, at the most you will see the communities, right? So, like dots on this huge, um, you know, uh, geographic area. And by huge, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when you see the maps and you see the trails, then you realize that there's something something more so there, there are many ways in which you can show how Inuit systematically use uh, you know the Arctic environment and resources and so on so you know harvest harvesting studies and place names uh, uh, cultural sites uh, but what the trails and the routes do uh, is that they actually show how people get to those places right so as I always said, the, the, the trails on, on, on the maps that I make are are basically static representations of a very dynamic uh, type of knowledge. So the trails are are, um, are, are you know are basically uh, connected to seasonal um, you know opportunities and, and, and variabilities and the presence of animals. So the whole point of a trail is that it becomes a social space so that if you are, as an Inuit, you're traveling and going caribou hunting or uh, water hunting or visiting someone, uh, if you have travel on the way, 
there is a chance that somebody else will be traveling the same trail. Right. So you are not randomly, you know, going into no man's land. You're going, you're actually traveling through a space that is used uh, predictably. So, um, so the trails are defined in space and time. And one of the things that they show is this really interesting and intriguing um, interconnection between uh, people's movements and animals' uh, trajectories. So, uh, because basically, most Inuit trails and, and, and routes are, are connected to harvesting. Right. So, uh, and they're also connected to state of the ice and state of the snow. So, um, so this makes, you know, again, it's not just traveling on, on, on a static landscape. It's actually uh, timing one's own movement uh, to um, uh, geospatial um, uh, and, 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 and animals uh, uh, behaviors and, 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 and there's this sense of, uh, of an Inuit calendar that that is not you know the Gregorian calendar right divided in you know, specific months and so on uh, but times that are not only defined by astronomical phenomena but also by um, you know whatever there's enough snow or or um, this the ice is solid enough or you know the the caribou has a certain type of fat and, <laughs> and, and those things are are um, are very significant in terms of where and when people travel so when you have um, you know it's quite common to to go back to uh, if you go back to the, the, the British journals, um, you know, the explorers, uh, again, most explorers kept talking about the toil of um, of being in this, you know, hostile place yeah. and so on. Uh, you know, and <clears throat> obviously it's just harsh, yeah. place, <laughs> but, but the main <laughs> issue was that, again, if the, the, they didn't have the knowledge of where those intersections occur, you know, with animals, and 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 in a sense, you know, they didn't have that knowledge of um, of seasonal changes in the environment uh, to the degree that that Inuit communities would, right? So, knowing when, you know, knowing the different um, progressions of of how, how the ice forms, dynamics of of ice formation. Not in the abstract, but in specific spaces. You know, like I remember asking an Inuit hunter uh, again when I was doing my doctorate. You know, to kind of describe the terms and the process of of the sea ice freezing and and um, and eventually breaking breaking. And 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 then he he said, "Well, where do you want me to <laughs> to explain it?" Right. So. And I didn't understand his point, but but then I realized, and we realized that that, that basically he needed kind of a concrete space, so we chose one bay, right? Okay, where he could actually explain 
the ice dynamics and that was important because there were a couple of creeks that were in you know sort of a river that was bringing fresh water so that changed, changed the, the ice formation uh, so and and then of course the sea ice is uh, you know in some places i mean it becomes an extension of the land for months yeah so in, in iglulik it was like eight months that, <laughs> so the topography of the land suddenly becomes entangled with the topography of the sea ice and, and that's also a revelation to think of the sea ice as having a topography right so uh, features that that occur or reoccur and you know roughly on the same locations right every every year so people would know where a certain ice ridge uh, or ice crack will be so um it's even to the point of some cases having place names on, on the sea ice right, right. so um that interconnection between land and and sea became also important in my research. So in terms of uh, end use, mm-hmm. um, because as I mentioned before, uh, there's two you can there's two online maps. Yeah. Um, what like when you were I go again it's an unfair question because it's kind of asking you what's the end use of your entire research career <laughs> so like in term uh, so yeah uh, i mean i'll open i'll ask it open-ended like that to just not to quote, yeah but like how is um has the end use changed from when you like from the the start of your research to kind of how it's progressing now well the, the idea is to uh to make the data public Okay. Uh, but um, uh, we're not there yet. Okay. And um, and of course, the, the, there are um, there are some complications because you know it, it's not the documentation of trails in in my career hasn't been one smooth ride. I mean, <laughs> it, it you know it 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 had different purposes right through the year. So. Um, Right now, I'm at a point where the purpose is to fill up the gaps. Okay. And um, and so whenever uh, I do this type of research in a community, uh, I fill up the gaps and then I, I send um, paper maps and digital oh, okay. maps to the community. So there's that aspect. That hopefully, at one point, um, you know, not too far. Right. Um, from now, uh, we will make you know the, the map of the trails available. Uh, whenever there have been public exhibits or uh, you know talks, there's this huge interest in um, by Inuit and by by non-Inuit on, on the map. So hopefully this will this will happen. In the meantime. Uh, there are implications of recognizing and understanding Inuit mobility systems and all sort of other practical um, things happening right now. So, um, with um, uh, you know the Canadian government um, uh, recognition of the United Nations uh, Indigenous Rights and. Uh, you know the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 
duty to, to consult and so on. Um, th th there is, a, you know, a, a trend that that you know probably started with the land claims in the seventies, but it, there's a trend to involve Inuit um, in uh, ocean governance and coastal governance and land governance and so on. So um, understanding the significance of mobility for for Inuit. Uh, it's crucial, I think, uh, because there's this idea of, you know, okay, what would be, you know, how can we understand an Inuit governance approach? Um, you know, how would Inuit actually traditionally deal with, you know, so and so thing? And, uh, you know, it's a very complicated question to answer, and, and, and you know, there are a lot of Inuit. Um, Individuals and organizations that that are are working on that. I, I do think that mobility is important because one. I would say the most dramatic change in in Inuit's uh, you know history of contact um, came after um, centralization uh, policies of the late fifties and. 60s and so on so the moving into a permanent settlement was yeah a huge disruption of um, this kind of rhythmic um connection that people had with land and resources and um, it was you know kind of a social organization that that um that was built on uh, on this dynamic so uh, moving into permanent settlements uh, had significant effects on how people related to the land. Um, but the nature of, of Inuit culture is connected to that semi-nomadic um, view of and experience of, of the environment. Uh, and people are still using, you know, the same trails and the same areas that 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 the, that were used before before they moved to permanent settlement. So bringing that back, um, or, well, bringing that idea, that concept of mobility to kind of the forefront of, uh, you know, governance and engagement, uh, I think is perhaps a significant step on the right direction. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And then I get... Because I was thinking too, because one of the, uh, that's why I used the, the word negotiate, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, when the knowledge is held within community or within people, the control there is the control yeah. over who can access it and how it's accessed. And, yeah. and you know, it, that's relational again to, you know, yeah. the, the space and the time of literally being there, you know, the example of mm -hmm. the concrete example of at where does the sea ice do this at this time? So ha has there been, have you encountered any kind of pushback or any, or just not even, doesn't have to be pushback per se, but like interesting about the, like the shift from the control of amongst the people to, to potentially not like not that direct relation. I mean, because that direct relation can still, so you, you, still you, be asserted. Right. Um, so you mean like the, when the knowledge kind of leaves the community and becomes, Public. Part of an artifact, or, or yeah, yeah, something. Well, I mean, and even too, just flippantly, because yeah. uh, you know, uh, 
southern hunters yeah. and fisher you know even when i go out with my dad and family when we come back and people ask us how was yeah. our day fishing we you know we kind of you know we did yeah. okay but we don't tell anyone yeah. where we went yeah and I, i'm not suggesting that's the yeah. relation but i mean that does yeah. those that type of control over knowledge does so occur. uh the the reason for which that hasn't happened is that well there are two reasons one is people know from the beginning that the, the whole objective is to make maps right okay uh, so whatever is on the map is understood that we have become part of the map right um, <laughs> but then second the I, i'm i'm mostly interest interested on uh, interested in um uh, regional scales okay so and one of the reasons because i'm interested in those interconnections between communities but another reason of course is that um was the kind of the practical it's impossible to document those trails locally uh, you know across all the Inuit communities of the circumpolar north uh, but but then the consequence of a consequence of that is that the, there is not enough detail for people to clearly identify, right. uh, you know, there's no sensitive information at that scale. Oh, yeah. So um, that is, you know, but uh, to be honest, like, I've never heard that um, uh, argument uh, coming from, or that worry coming from, from Inuit, at least you know, connected to that part of my my work, uh, it, it's the question has been asked a lot by academics. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I assumed as much. It was yeah. just more an interest than a, yeah. And I mean, I assume also demonstrating usage mm-hmm. and continued usage would be and would also be able to weigh to assert control, particular because yeah, we're around, and so back to your uh, right. Uh, noting governance, right, right. So again, to but, kind but, of counter the idea that it it's empty or vast or yeah, uh, yeah, the things you were talking about. But you can see that there is that there are different attitudes towards making certain data available. Yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, in terms of place names uh, in Nunavut, they are publicly available. Like you can find them. Uh, you know, Inuit Heritage Trust basically made that data available. Okay. In Nunavik, to my knowledge, you cannot. Mm. So um, the same with harvesting data. So different Inuit organizations and and uh, regional organizations have different policies, and um, so it's kind of hard to generalize. Um, right. Yeah. And then, of course, the communities are are different, right? Yeah, but you know, in terms of the trails and place names and and so on, there's usually that need of um, of uh, passing down this knowledge that is identified by by the elders in the communities, right? Yeah. Then to perhaps switch it. Uh, completely uh, um, not the topic but the um, 
the the technical aspect of it because you were talking about mapping and mm -hmm. GPS and perhaps like the initial GPS technology was perhaps a little uh, esoteric as opposed to now. So how how have you found this like that change and like has it made obviously has it made the re the research easier because now kind of most people have a GPS unit mm -hmm. on them at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, have any GPS companies <laughs> have is it kind of you you just propose and get the units or like what's so the, kind I, of like an economics question yeah I, I never unfortunately follow up on my research so <laughs> so the GPS side of of my research kind of ended in the year 2000 so oh, okay eight, 18 17 years ago yeah okay yeah uh, which is unfortunate and I think that that I mean, to my knowledge, there, there hasn't been any, at least published, follow-up on that. Mm. Um, I do have, you know, anecdotal evidence of, um, of GPS becoming more and more um, uh, available and, and, and people using GPS on a regular basis. I don't use GPS to document trails okay. um, now. Okay. I, so all my documentation right now is on uh, through participatory mapping techniques of creating these big maps that people as communities uh, you know uh, engage with and okay and, and, and basically mark the the trails on on these empty maps right um, some people I know for instance in Greenland have um, some researchers have um, uh, done uh, in, in, in the context of uh, research partnerships with the communities have recorded trails right um, through a year which is basically hunters that had their GPS on right um, now in terms of the of the use of GPS uh, yeah so it's becoming uh, more and more available and you know uh, and, and then there's there are questions about, you know, what are the effects that GPS might be having in people's perception of space. Mm. Those are yeah important questions, I think. Yeah, so I'm, I, I, that, then I missed that aspect there. Can it, so that in terms of the method of collecting the knowledge about the trails, it's not it's not like waypoints on a. So the, that so that, that was the beginning. Yeah, that would, but now it's yeah. So even back to my question about control mm -hmm. it's not that this that knowledge then doesn't exist on it even a chip yeah. that, that a, what yeah. a, you know a private gps company right. would have right. to then would to do with so it stays there already right so the map is built from the, the community as opposed to just kind of passive yeah passive tracking yeah so the the gps tracking it would be much more accurate but at the same time there are you know certain complications and and that methodology uh you know hunters may be following a different trail but you know that it's not a community trail. so just kind of right. to do it properly you would have to do it over a period of i don't know five years or something like that right uh, and then um and then a, a, a hunter's gps record is uh is an individual record Right. What I like about participatory mapping techniques is that they are organized around focus groups. So you have that quality control of um, 
you know, knowledge control uh, of, of the community, actually. Um, where there is that kind of peer review, <laughs> uh, you know, while the session while the session takes place. So usually, uh, and this happens organically. Um, I would say always um, a particular elder is called to map a certain area. Right. And if there is some debate, then the elder would ask somebody else. Uh, so there is that community control over the maps right okay yeah. yeah and social meaning yeah too as opposed to maps just being yeah like it which it, i mean in many ways i don't again i don't know if that's a wasn't an outcome or just the kind of the the like a positive externalities that you know maps just aren't passive yeah. things that you just look at yeah. to find your way yeah like it's a, mm -hmm. it's a it's a ongoing map building project too yeah. in a sense yeah yeah, but I, that seemed an important point to think of. Just some some academics mostly worry about, you know, what happens with an oral knowledge once you put it down on paper, as if the paper uh, text, uh, you know, would be uh, a static object. And the truth is that that people recreate those objects. So. Um, you know, even a book, you know, to reading, uh, I don't know, Hamlet, and you read it twice, and it's not going to be the same book, and, you know, everybody will have a different interpretation, so the text lives, you know, has a life of its own, it's not because it's written, then yeah. that's the end of it. So, um, in terms of place names and trails, um, I, I really, truly don't think that, at least Inuit, look at them as, you know, the ultimate representation. Yeah. Um, they, they're starting points for conversations. So, the map becomes entangled in this, you know, broader dynamic of, uh, you know, sharing. So the map becomes one more thing, the same way that the GPS becomes one more thing, um, you know, in the experience of the land. So that that was one of the questions we asked, you know, in, uh, in that current anthropology article, you know, in terms of what is the effect of GPS. And in uh, one of the conclusions is you cannot look at a technological device in isolation. Uh, you have to look at you know, how the device is connected to many other things, including our devices, right? So, um, so those things become entangled with, you know, broader practices, practices, and uh, the maps become, you know, another way. But the maps are symbolically and politically important. If you go to any community, uh, uh, Inuit prevailing community in, in the Canadian Arctic I would say that almost in 100% of the airports or public buildings you will find maps yeah. and those maps are not uh, related to how Inuit see their own environments most of them, I mean you might have to find some exceptions, but 
generally speaking, those were mobs produced in the South with, you know, uh, uh, ideas of what the North is like, you know, because mobs are not innocent. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, they have, you know, they're symbolically charged. So to, even to find a map that shows how people interact with each other and how they go to places instead of this empty you know even that at that level at that generic level the maps become you know a political and symbolic instrument yeah so well and historic too because yeah. it changes the perception of explorers exactly like exactly. what were they exploring right. yeah. <laughs> or what did they think they were exploring yeah, yeah. So for me right now, documenting those trails has become, you know, I said obsession, but it's almost like a mission because I see, I see how that fabric of trails is, you know, kind of gradually populating the whole Arctic. And, um, you know, it seems that, that at this point, I just have to, I have to do it, you know, even beyond thinking about <laughs> the reasons for that I just you know it has to be done <laughs> so uh and you know and, and i think that inuit uh, uh communities and organizations understand that because the the latest part for instance uh, that was done also by uh, um that w- with help of um, the former senator charlie white it was in in, in, in the inuvialut region mm-hmm. and the only way i could fill up that huge gap. I mean, the Inuvialut region is it's incredibly huge. I can't remember the exact, you know, surface. It's like two million square kilometers or something. I can't remember. Um, it, it, the only way to to um, to undertake that in one month, yeah. which is what happened, <laughs> okay. was to, uh, to have, um, you know, the Inuvialut Regional Corporation you know, supporting the project and and uh, using one of their community tours to to actually document the trails right. in the six communities. So, so you know, after a month, there was this huge gap of of data that became filled. Right. So, and it, there were no questions asked. You know, I mean, of course, I have to go through the process of getting you know, the research license and community support, but um, it, it was just such an obvious thing that, that needed to be done. <laughs> so, uh, so again, you know, I mean, hopefully in, a, in the near future, this would become more available. Right. Yeah. And, it, and so in terms of uh, talking about the future and mm-hmm. like your research is that, so this is still the, the focus of your well, it's not the fault. It's it's like a side, okay, fun thing. Okay. So if, if I could, to be honest with you, this would be the focus. Okay. Of my professional life, but, <laughs> right. but uh, you know, I, I uh, there's uh, other things that you there know. <laughs> there are things that that are pressing and um, anyway, research wise, but uh, the documentation of the trail is something that I I, I just have uh, done. Uh, without interruption since the year 2000 so it's been 18 years wow and there's always some funding and some interest and you know uh, kind of things somehow move forward so 
there are gaps that I still want to fill in 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 Canada. Um, some important gaps in Central Arctic, mm-hmm. and and, um, and and then eventually, I mean, my dream would be to to do Alaska and, and Greenland. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's uh, unfortunately you cannot rely on historical data uh, because the you know whatever data there is and there's not a lot of data on trails for some reason they were not uh, identified as something that needed to be documented but even the, the, the data that you find in historical books sometimes different it's difficult to um, um, integrate with um, you just kind of have to have some kind of methodological um, base to uh, continuum, you know, to to actually integrate the data on a on a way that that is that is meaningful, right? So even such even really important studies as the Inuitland and, and and using occupancy project in the nineteen seventies, you know, the the data that I can actually use to supplement what I'm collecting is minimal. Right. So, um, because trails were not systematically documented, right? So, um, yeah. So the 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 idea is that at one point the whole <laughs> occupied world would be represented, but at least you know the the first stage is to to fill up a few gaps in Canada, right? And and it shouldn't take that long to be honest. It's just a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> another change of you know scope of time shouldn't take that long a couple of years <laughs> yeah as opposed to right <laughs> um again to perhaps switch it a little because we've been focused uh much on the like the professional although mm-hmm. it sounds personal mm-hmm. obviously um mm-hmm. before or before during or or, or currently um were you a what would easily described as an outdoors person did you hunt or fish or camp or um i didn't hunt or fish uh growing up in argentina i mean yeah i could define myself as an outdoor outdoor person Uh, but back back in in mendoza where i grew up uh you know it was mostly climbing Mm. so it was the mountains and to be honest the, the the Arctic kind of changed my relationship with. Well, it introduced a different dimension. I mean, when you go to the Arctic, even for the first time, there's it's something you have never seen before, right? And um, an understanding and participating in fishing and hunting with with Inuit. Um, it really changed my perception of pretty much everything, I mean, but but you know, made me understand that deep connection that people have with the environment in a way that cannot be, you know, articulated in words. You know, like mm-hmm. there, you know, this this sensory experiences of of being, you know, in the middle of. Uh, 
what feels like the middle of nowhere, but obviously it's not. Yeah. Uh, to to in communities, but you're, you know, in this isolated, apparently isolated place, and and then uh, you know there's the the pursuing, and and the hunt, you know, of a walrus or a or a caribou. Or, or even fish and, and, and then just having that relationship with the animal um, that in this kind of you know perceptually isolated place uh, you know that you understand the connection between the hand and life in a way that that it was completely foreign to me before Mm-hmm. I never thought of that relationship. You know, I'm, I wasn't a vegetarian or anything like that. Yeah, being Argentinian also, you know, it's, it's the whole huge culture of the barbecue and so on, so you meet all the time. But uh, it, it was that connection through the hunting and through the fact that you are in a place that that for uh, to a non-in way, it really looks empty, right? So, so finding that resource, it, even finding it, is you know significant. And then the process of hunting it or you know fishing it, and you know the 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 consumption that takes place uh, in terms of um, you know maybe having uh, some of the animal or some of the fish right off the. Mm-hmm. heal um, and feeling that energy kind of coming back to your own body because you're cold yeah and and, uh, and feeling that your energy gets back and your blood starts circulating yeah. <laughs> so those extremely deep, deep connections happen through you know uh, were unveiled to me through through those shared experiences mm-hmm. with Inuit so then, to perhaps uh, ask a completely unfair question as to how you just described it, do you have do you have a a particularly memorable story or experience over your career, your life there? Uh, you know, there there are so many. <laughs> they the, um, uh, they they uh, they are connected usually to maybe learning experiences, right? You know, things that that determined um that were kind of a turning point in in how i experienced the arctic or you know something that i basically learned so if one one of the things that happened early on for instance was uh, uh i was taught um i was shown basically how to type the load on my sled okay so this is kind of a traditional inuit sled and um, you know, using rope, uh, basically a hunter uh, I was traveling with uh, showed me how he was doing his, and then he told me to do mine, and I assumed that he was going to supervise me. <laughs> and uh, the reality was that he didn't, and um, or maybe he did, but he didn't say anything. So um, I tied the sled and. Then, you know, we started traveling and, uh, you know, probably half an hour after we we uh, departed, um, he was in the front and he stopped and 
uh, came to me and and asked me how my sled was and i i looked back and it was empty <laughs> and <laughs> and he laughed <laughs> and uh, and you know we spent like an hour retrieving all those things mm. and putting it back and he showed me again but and that was that was a learning moment for me because i learned that that was it that was the teaching moment, right right it wasn't about you know um uh a formal training of how to do this or how to do that it was like you have to be observant and and um pay attention and it was a way of teaching me right so i felt like a child and mm -hmm. that's very common you know when when you go as an anthropologist right to a different culture you feel like a child right but um uh but it, you know and really it was the way in which you know um older people would teach children uh but that was you know extremely important for me and and the second one um I have about 10 more minutes yeah yeah oh yeah the second one was um also at the beginning of my of my um doctoral research um so that was in the year 2000 it was in probably early december or late november so it was getting very cold and um, before i went to the field for the season i i um, did some research on you know what was warmest and you know <laughs> being from argentina also i mean i wasn't even used to the weather in edmonton right so anyway uh you know i, I learned that you know caribou clothing was the warmest and uh, and so on and uh, so you know I had some money so instead of buying the outfit and uh, you know store I uh, commissioned someone in the okay. community to to make me a, a caribou oh yeah outfit <laughs> and um, the first trip we uh, again it was like nighttime because it was like almost 40 uh, 24 hours you know uh, darkness and uh we i was following a group of uh, you know just basically what five six people and, and then something common you're traveling on a trail and you see people coming the other way because they're social spaces so yeah uh, you know we stopped and had a, a coffee break and smoke break and then and then someone from the other group comes and you know all together there were about 15 people i was the only non-inuit he comes and said you know you're the only one of us who is uh, dressed like an eskimo <laughs> <laughs> and he used the word eskimo right uh but and that's true i was true and, <laughs> you know everybody else they were wearing you know maybe some you know kind of traditional meats or so on but most of them were using synthetic clothes and I was the only one. <laughs> so that was a huge learning uh, moment for me in terms of um, the meaning of tradition, kind of understanding that, of course, the fact that they were not using the traditional clothing didn't mean that they were not, you know, less Inuit. Right. The same way that I wasn't any Inuit because right. I was wearing that. <laughs> and, and second, you know, about um, the, the, the fact of... Um, 
you know how sometimes anthropologists we or even external observers in general we have this tendency to think of of cultural change as a you know as a bad word and and so on and and you could see how you know it was a known issue it was just the way it was it was probably for them way more practical and even less expensive to to deal with uh, synthetic clothing mm -hmm. um it was also um you know um you have to kill a, a number of cars which you have one full outfit so you know probably ecologically wasn't sustainable for for the full community to have those outfits i mean i haven't done a study on that but it's you know kind of a common sense conclusion uh, but also the fact that that people were traveling and by motorboats and and snowmobiles you know um, made the physical activity of traveling different so right. that um you know you sweat more at certain times when you're traveling by snowmobile like if your snow your your sled gets stuck on the ice or in the snow you have to get off your snowmobile yeah. and, and you know do a lot of physical activity so you sweat and then then you're static um for a while and it, you know the the sweat basically dries and then your car will park and becomes stiff right, right. so, so uh, <laughs> So I wasn't as comfortable as the other ones, and, and, and then I eventually ended up uh, for my my next thesis. So I ended up having synthetic clothing, not because it was better, uh, but it was more practical. Right. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a perfect spot to end it. So uh, all right. Thank you very much. That was a wonderful no conversation. Yeah. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Okay. <laughs>